We shall turn now to the Word of God, to the book of the Revelation, chapter 6. Revelation, chapter 6, and we shall read from the beginning of the chapter just to refresh our memories. And I saw when the Lamb opened one of the seals, and I heard, as it were, the noise of thunder, one of the four beasts saying, Come and see. And I saw, and behold, a white horse, and he that sat on him had a bow, and a crown was given unto him, and he went forth conquering and to conquer. And when he had opened the second seal, I heard the second beast say, Come and see. And there went out another horse that was red, and power was given to him that sat thereon to take peace from the earth, and that they should kill one another. And there was given unto him a great sword. And when he had opened the third seal, I heard the third beast say, Come and see. And I beheld, and lo, a black horse, and he that sat on him had a pair of balances in his hand. And I heard a voice in the midst of the four beasts say, A measure of wheat for a penny, and three measures of barley for a penny, and see, thou hurt not the oil and the wine. And when he had opened the fourth seal, I heard the voice of the fourth beast say, Come and see. And I looked, and behold, a pale horse, and his name that sat on him was death, and hell followed with him. And power was given unto them over the fourth part of the earth, to kill with sword and with hunger and with death and with the beasts of the earth. And when he had opened the fifth seal, I saw under the altar the souls of them that were slain for the word of God and for the testimony which they held. And they cried with a loud voice, saying, How long, O Lord, holy and true, dost thou not judge and avenge our blood on them that dwell in the earth? And white robes were given unto every one of them, and it was said unto them that they should rest yet for a little season until their fellow servants also and their brethren that should be killed as they were should be fulfilled, and so on. We return to the consideration of this revelation of Jesus Christ, and we keep stressing the importance of that fact that this book is all about Christ. He is central to everything that we find within its contents. It is the revelation of Jesus Christ which God gave. So it is a reliable and an accurate revelation of him. And we should be asking ourselves as we progress through the book, is my knowledge of him improving? Is my knowledge of him and of his ways, are they improving, are they developing? Because if they are not, then we are not understanding what we're about. Now, we have seen the coronation of the exalted Christ. He was humbled, he humbled himself, he became of no reputation. But then God purposed to exalt him to his own right hand as a prince and as a savior. And his name was to be above every other name. The most exalted personage in the whole of the universe. And when he takes the throne, he takes into his hand a book or a scroll, and he begins to open the seals so that its content is to be revealed and made known. 
and we have been considering the opening of the first four seals in particular. But we are aware that there are all kinds of interpretations of this book. And the interpretations of this book changed dramatically in the 19th century. Up until the 19th century, there was an agreement, there was harmony amongst the godly and amongst the preachers of the word of God regarding the content of this book. But it all changed. Whenever J.N. John Nelson Darby, uh, who was born in 1800 and he was an Anglican, he was baptized in the Anglican Church, he was ordained in the Anglican Church, but he became involved in the establishment of what today we know as the Plymouth Brethren Movement and later the Exclusive Brethren Movement. And alongside of his teaching of dispensationalism, we had the introduction in America of the Schofield Bible. And it became the Bible to which a great number of the American fundamentalists, and then again in Britain it spread, uh, the authorized version was not abandoned. Schofield adhered to the authorized version, and that's where the subtlety came in. But his notes, his additional interpretive notes, became the classical, as it were, interpretation of Scripture, and very particularly with regard to the last things, the coming of Christ and the great tribulation and the secret rapture. And these doctrines began to spread everywhere. And the old Reformed understanding of Scripture became to a large extent undermined. And it took some time before the church recovered its position and was able to appreciate that these teachings were not warranted by the word of God. But we have to be aware that this teaching, dispensationalism, the secret rapture, and Adventism, it is still very prevalent today in evangelical circles. We need, therefore, to scrutinize the word of God carefully to make sure we understand what Christ, what he intended the church to understand. In the opening words of the book of the Revelation, we are not left in a quandary as to when we might expect things to begin to develop. In chapter 1 of Revelation, we go back to the very introduction. The revelation of Jesus Christ. Now, it isn't about merely events isolated events in the history of the church. Yes, automatically, naturally, we must uh, be concerned with them because all power is given unto Christ and he's in control of everything. But this is the revelation of Jesus Christ which God gave unto him to show unto his servants. What is the purpose of it? What's the purpose of this book, this revelation? To show unto his servants things which must come to pass. No. Which must shortly come to pass. Now, what would John think? He, 
If he hears these words, shortly come to pass, would he be thinking, well, that must be a couple of thousand years away yet. He'd be thinking the man's insane. It is that which is to shortly come to pass. It's going to happen. It's going to come to pass. John, therefore, would expect it to shortly come to pass. And he sent and signified it by his angel unto his servant John, who bear record of the word of God and of the testimony of Jesus Christ and of all things that he saw. Blessed is he that readeth, and they that hear the words of this prophecy and keep those things which are written therein for the time is at hand. The language is clear. God isn't trying to confuse us. The head of the church isn't seeking to confound us and confuse us so that we're mixed up in our understanding of what he is purposing to do. These things John would automatically, when he's shown them, these are things that are going to happen and they're going to begin to happen very soon. And when we come to the crowning of the glorious Christ, how do we know that it has happened? What did he tell his disciples to expect as proof that he was actually exalted, that he was actually crowned, that he was now exalted to the Father's right hand? They were told they were to tarry at Jerusalem and they were to wait for the promise of the Father. And on the day of Pentecost, the promise of the Father was fulfilled. What happened as the disciples were waiting, as they were directed to do, the Spirit of God descended upon them in the form of cloven tongues of fire. And they were changed men. And Peter in the day of Pentecost preached that great sermon and 3,000 were converted at one time. This was extraordinary in the history of the church, but it was the evidence he's on the throne now. And he promised when he would ascend on high, I will pray the Father. And he will send you another comforter, the spirit of truth. And when he has come, what is he going to do? He's going to guide the church into the truth, but he is going to convince of sin and of righteousness and of judgment to come. And we see right away this is happening. So now the church knows, the disciples know, Beyond our vision, he's exalted. Beyond our earthly scene, he is in control. And he is now working for the advancement of his kingdom. Now, in the chapter 6, he begins opening the seals and things begin to happen. He doesn't open the seal and then we're left to wonder what's inside that scroll, what's written in that scroll. We're told of things beginning to happen. Mighty forces begin to operate in the lives and in the society of men. The white horse, Christ going forth, the prosperity of the gospel, and that was evident, and John was a witness to it. But then there is the red horse and the black horse and so on. And these mighty forces are now at work. These are the things that are to come to pass shortly. These are the things that were to take place 
in the early history of the church. Now, having said that, the book is not confined to the events merely within the first century, as we shall see. But these things are happening for a reason. And that's part of the reason, in fact, we read from the chapter that we read from, and I want us to go back to it. Luke's Gospel, chapter 21. There are three chapters in the Synoptic Gospels, Matthew 24 and Luke 21 and Mark chapter 13. And those three chapters all state very similar things. But they record the teaching of the Savior. They record him speaking to men who were alive. He's not speaking merely prophetically to generations that are to be born yet. He's speaking directly to his disciples and uh, uh, going for the present to Luke chapter 21. You'll see how the conversation begins. In Matthew, or Luke rather, 21, verse 5, and you see that Jesus was actually in the temple. We read at the end of the chapter, verse 37, in the, in the daytime he was teaching in the temple. He's teaching. He's not just, as it were, meditating for his own profit or speaking in a casual way in conversation with some friends. He's teaching. This is doctrine. He's teaching. And he is the great teacher. No one can teach better than him. And what's he teaching? He's teaching about things that are going to happen, verse 32 of Luke chapter 21, Verily he says, Verily I say unto you, This generation shall not pass away till all be fulfilled. What's he teaching then? He's teaching of things that are going to happen very soon. And he says, this present generation, he's talking to men and women. And he says, you will not all pass from this scene of time before these things are going to take place. They're going to happen when you're still alive, some of you. Now, what's he talking about? Well, go back to verse 5 of this chapter and as some speak of the temple. That's where their conversation begins to center around. The temple. Now you could go today to Jerusalem. And you would see the remains of the temple. And multitudes, millions from all over the world. They think it is a most wonderful experience to go to the land of Israel, to go around the sites in Jerusalem, to think that I'm walking in the ground where the Savior walked, to think I'm visiting the places where perhaps he preached, the place where he was crucified, the place where he was buried, the place from which he ascended into heaven and the place where he performed miracles and all these wonderful things. And people come home and say, oh, what a wonderful experience it was. You never hardly ever hear anyone ever refer to the ruins of Jerusalem and the ruins of the temple. 
that stand in the 21st century as a witness and a testimony to the accuracy of the biblical predictions by the Savior himself. They are proof that Christ spoke accurately, predicting exactly what was going to happen. And people can deny the existence of God and the worthlessness of the scriptures, but like as it is in Romans chapter 1, even to a greater extent, this generation suppresses the evidence of the truth. When Paul was writing to those in Romans chapter 1, he said the heavens, uh, they were declaring the 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 creation around was declaring the existence of God. But men, because they wanted, they, they, they refused God, they didn't want to believe in God, so they suppressed the evidence. Now, even since Paul's day, we have further evidence of the accuracy of the contents of the Bible, but men ignore it. We're not interested in it. It's interesting, even you go back to Genesis, to a night when Jacob was in the wilderness, and he wrestled with the angel of the covenant until the breaking of the, or the dawning of the day. And the angel said, what is thy name? And then what did he tell Jacob? Thy name shall be no more Jacob, but Israel. Israel. Now you think of it. How many millenniums have passed? And there is in this world, on this planet, a nation that is called Israel. And it goes right back over all these millenniums the most peculiar nation on the face of the earth in a sense, because it apparently went out of existence, but in 1948 it was brought back into existence. But what is this telling us? That the Bible is reliable. Its information can be trusted. It can be relied upon. But coming back here to Luke chapter 21, Jesus is confronted with this question you see about the temple. Verse 6, As for these things, Jesus said, which ye behold. You're actually looking at them. You can see them. They materially exist. The days will come in the which there shall not be left one stone upon another that shall not be thrown down. When did Jesus say, Verily I say unto you, this generation shall not pass away till all be fulfilled. This is going to happen in the lifetime of some of you people listening to me. That's what the Savior was saying. And they asked him, saying, Master, but when shall these things be? And remember how long it had taken them to build this great temple, this great structure. Jesus says, before this generation passes away, that temple is going to be gone. And they find that mighty hard to believe. Yes, it might certainly suffer from some earthquake. It might be attacked by some army, but that was 
most, most unlikely. But Jesus said this is going to happen. And uh, he says, uh, verse 7, they asked him, saying, Master, but when shall these things be? And what signs shall there be when these things shall come to pass? So Jesus tells them, gives them certain warnings. There's going to be false uh, professions by men setting themselves up as messiahs. And they're going to be saying, I'm the Christ and follow me and I will deliver you and so on. Between the time the Savior spoke these words in A.D. 70 when Jerusalem was destroyed, there were at least seven different men all claiming to be messiahs and leading portions of the society to follow them. But Jesus said, Take heed that ye be not deceived. Ye shall hear of wars and rumors of wars and all kinds of developments. But in verse 12, Jesus says, But before all these, before this will happen, before uh, there will not be a stone laid one upon another, uh, before this will happen, before the developments that will bring it about will take place, before all these, they shall lay their hands on you and persecute you, delivering you up to the synagogues and into prisons, being brought before kings and rulers for my name's sake. Now Jesus says before the, the temple will be destroyed, there's going to be persecution. And you can expect to be imprisoned and persecuted. Those who preach the gospel are going to be fiercely opposed and you'll be brought before Pilate and you'll be brought before Caesar and so on. And of course, this all happened. But then, in verse 20, we're jumping for the sake of time. We can't, because this is not what we're actually uh, speaking about, the, uh, all these events, but simply preparing the ground, as it were, to understand the significance of the four horses. Verse 20. When ye shall see... Jerusalem compassed with armies. When you see that happen. Now you can imagine these people, they're listening to the Savior. And they're looking at Jerusalem and they're looking at the temple, the great, magnificent edifice, the wonder of the world. And Jesus is saying very shortly, it's not going to be there to see. You'll just see the ruins. But before that happens, you can expect persecution and opposition to the spread of the gospel and those who preach it. But remember what the question is to the Savior. When are these things going to happen? When are they going to happen? They're going to happen in your lifetime, Jesus says. And when ye shall see Jerusalem compassed with armies. Now that would have seemed incredible. Jerusalem surrounded by armies. What armies? What reason would have army, armies have for surrounding Jerusalem? But Jesus said, you, when you see it, then you'll know that this is going to happen. Then know ye that the desolation thereof is nigh. When you see the armies surrounding Jerusalem, you will know what I have been weeping over. What did Jesus do? He sat and he looked over Jerusalem and he wept. Because the people within that city didn't recognize the great mercy of God in sending them a Messiah, 
sending them a Savior, providing the gospel for them. Oh, Jerusalem, Jerusalem, he lamented. Thou that stonest the prophets that have been sent unto thee. Jesus was lamenting over that city because of its ignorance and its unbelief. And he says to these people in the temple, the day is coming when there won't be any more teaching in this temple. There won't be any more sacrifices in this temple. There won't be a priesthood to serve God in this temple. It'll be at an end. It'll be desolate, led desolate. Now, why would this be? Verse 21, when this happens, then let them which are in Judea flee to the mountains, and let them which are in the midst of it depart out of it, and let them that are in the countries enter, not enter, they're into When did the armies surround Jerusalem? They didn't do it until uh, the Roman armies sought to put down the rebellious Jews in not just Jerusalem, but in Judea, the surrounding areas. Without going into all the details, it was Titus, in A.D. 70, actually uh, destroyed his armies, not only surrounded Jerusalem, they led it absolutely desolate. Not one stone was laid upon another. The Jews had rebelled so often and so fiercely and fought the Romans so fiercely, as well as fighting one another, that in their frustration... The Romans just demolished everything. Stones uh, were demolished uh, so that the, the glory had, as it were, departed. Now, why is this to happen? Verse 22. For these be the days of vengeance that all things which are written may be fulfilled. These be the days of vengeance. Whose vengeance? Is it the vengeance of the Romans? Is it the vengeance of Christians? Whose vengeance? These be the days of vengeance. Now you can imagine what happens if we're able to somehow or other convince ourselves that what is predicted in the book of the Revelation, the fearful events that take place, They're away in the future somehow. We don't have any evidence that they happened, and thus we don't know they were really as bad as the historians may tell us. Jesus said these terrible things are going to take place while some of you are still alive. You are going to be witnesses to the divine vengeance of God. God's vengeance. You will get a taste of what divine vengeance is like. You remember in the teaching of the Savior, when he went and preached the gospel in certain cities and it was rejected, he told the people in their unbelief, 
that it would be more tolerable for Sodom and Gomorrah than it would be for them. Because they had more light and greater privileges, the vengeance of God against Sodom and Gomorrah would be light in comparison with his vengeance against those who would reject his own beloved son and trample the blood of the covenant under their feet. You look at what is written in the epistle to the Hebrews, there in the chapter 10. Here's, and these are the Hebrews. These are the people that Jesus mingled with and taught. These are the people that Paul is instructing as to the uh, contrast of the blessings of the gospel to the old bondage and the, the economy of bondage under the ceremonial law. What does he write here? Uh, Hebrews uh, chapter 10 verse <coughs> 28 Well, we may read from verse 26. For if we sin willfully after that we have received the knowledge of the truth, there remaineth no more sacrifice for sins. You remember shortly before the Savior was crucified, he came riding into Jerusalem on the foal of an ass. And they were cutting down palm leaves and strewing them in the way and their garments were spread in the way and they were welcoming the Messiah to Jerusalem. They were welcoming their king. The little children were encouraged and they were crying out, Hosanna, Hosanna to him that cometh in the name of the Lord. And in a short time, They now are rejecting that very person. They're crying out instead, not Hosanna, but away with him, crucify him. They were rejecting the knowledge that they possessed of who he was. It was the fulfillment of their own scriptures. They didn't believe their Bible anymore. They had all his miracles performed as testimony to his deity, but they still rejected him. They still accused him of blasphemy. They sinned willfully. They rejected the truth. Verse 27 then of Hebrews 10, this is what they may expect, a certain fearful looking for of judgment and fiery indignation which shall devour the adversaries. This is the God of whom Jonathan Edwards preached. Sinners in the hand of an angry God. In this day and generation, you're not supposed to preach about God ever being angry. God is love. And God loves everybody. And it doesn't matter how bad you are. God still loves you. Here is the God of Scripture, the God of eternity. This is what those who trample the gospel under their feet may expect. But here in verse 28 we read, He that despised Moses' law died without mercy under two or three witnesses. And the Hebrews knew that that was a fact, that was true. But then the question is asked, verse 29, Of how much sorer punishment? Punishment. From whom? Punishment from God. And who does he punish and why does he punish them? 
Of how much sore punishment suppose you, suppose ye, what, what the apostles said, well, well, think of it. Reason it through. If man rejected Moses and his law and his commandments and they were stoned to death and they were put to death for violating Moses' law, well now, do you think that it's a more serious thing to trample on the blood of the Messiah, to trample him under your feet. What kind of punishment do you think such crimes merit? That's really implied in the question. How much sore punishment suppose ye shall he be thought worthy who hath trodden underfoot the Son of God. Trodden underfoot the Son of God, the one of whom God declared three times during his ministry, this is my beloved Son in whom I am well pleased. Would you dare to trample him under your feet? My beloved son, do you expect it would stir my anger? Do you imagine it would kindle my wrath? Have you trampled my son under your feet? Will I take it lightly? Will I pay no attention? Will I ignore it? You trample my son under your feet. What do you expect me to do? Trample how much? Suppose ye shall be thought worthy who hath trodden underfoot the Son of God and hath counted the blood of the covenant, wherewith he was sanctified an unholy thing. From the very beginning, God was teaching the Israelites the life is in the blood. They were forbidden to eat the blood with the carcass because the life was in the blood. To take away a man's life, you shed his blood. And the blood of the covenant is the blood of the Redeemer. And here the question is asked, how do you think, what kind of punishment do you imagine? Men and women, any nation, any community, any people are worthy of who trample that person under their feet and then uh, despise the blood of the covenant, they trample it also under their feet and they consider it as an unholy thing. We know, verse 30, him that has said, vengeance belongeth unto me, I will recompense saith the Lord, and again the Lord shall judge his people. What did Jesus say was going to happen in the lifetime of those who were his hearers in the temple on this occasion? We've already read it. Luke 21, verse 22. For these be the days of vengeance. The vengeance that belongs to me. The vengeance that I am going to take against those who have trampled my son under their feet and have counted the blood of the covenant as an unholy thing. That's going to happen. You see where we've gotten to today? 
When this teaching came in, as I said, in the 19th century, God became a different God. And the works of God in history became those that were set aside, out of the way, unthought of, unconcerned about. And instead of the church being the focus of attention, central to the work of the glorious enthroned king, Israel and the nation of Israel became central. That's how you have all these dispensationalists and these Adventists and these who believe in the secret rapture and the earthly reign of Christ and Jerusalem and the throne of David when he will ascend in the Mount of Olives and the mountain will be uh, split down the middle and all these things are going to happen. Why has it all happened? The gospel has been watered down and God is no longer God. Sin is not taken seriously now. Rejection of the gospel isn't even serious anymore. Unbelief is not really a serious matter anymore. Because We do not give heed to the teaching of Jesus Christ. Multitudes have come to give heed to the teaching of Schofield or the teaching of John N. Darby and others like them, rejecting the teaching of the Savior. Because we don't want a God who has authority, who has power, who is holy, who takes vengeance on his enemies. And there's a cry goes up when the fifth seal is opened from the martyrs under the altar. How long, Lord? Until our blood is avenged, because their blood is bound up with the blood of Christ himself. Paul spoke of himself as being a partaker of the fellowship of his sufferings. Now he knew that because he'd been taught by the Savior. When he was struck down, going on his way to imprison more of the Lord's people, what did the Savior say to him? Why persecutest thou me? Paul acknowledged himself that he'd been at the martyrdom of Stephen. I stood by when they were stoning thy martyr. What was he doing? He was persecuting Christ when he was persecuting his church. And so God must take vengeance, the cries of his saints. The martyrs under the altar, Stephen included, Peter who was crucified, Paul, who was beheaded, James, who was beheaded, all these godly martyrs, generation by generation, the cry goes up, how long will it be before our blood is avenged? Before the blood of Christ is avenged? Now Jesus says, Some of you are going to see God in action. You are going to see something. You're going to get a taste of what divine vengeance is like. Now, in the 
gospel according to Matthew, going back and remembering what we've been reading in Hebrews 10, in Matthew's gospel, chapter 27, Spurgeon says, Never did any people ever bring upon them, he, he, he stated, Never did any other people invoke such an awful curse upon themselves and upon no other nation did such a judgment ever fall. What did they say? Matthew chapter 27, verse 24. When Pilate saw that he could prevail nothing, but rather a tumult was made, he took water and washed his hands before the multitude, saying, I am innocent of the blood of this just person. I will not be involved in the shedding of innocent blood. I do not want to be involved in this great injustice. See ye to it. If you can take it upon yourselves to shed the blood of this innocent man, go ahead and do it. But I will have nothing to do with it. Think of it, had you been there, your blood would have curdled in your very veins to hear these words. Then answered all the people and said, His blood be on us. And they didn't stop there. And on our children. His blood. His blood. Be upon us. And on the generations. Yet to be born. Our children. How much sorer punishment. The apostle writes to the Hebrews, do you imagine such people are worthy of who trample the Son of God under their feet and who treat his blood as an unholy thing? His blood be upon us We take full responsibility. We are prepared to receive whatever consequences come to us when we despise and when we reject and when we trample all the evidence of his eternal sonship, his eternal deity. We trample it under our feet. And as Spurgeon says, never was there ever any people who ever brought such a curse upon themselves. And Jesus is telling those in the temple, some of you are going to see the day coming when God is going to take vengeance on them that have trampled his son under their feet. And they who have treated the blood as an unholy thing, who've cried out, his blood be upon us. It doesn't matter to us. We are prepared to meet God regardless. Jesus is stating then what is to be expected 
when he ascends on high, but when men still alive at the time he's teaching them, who would still be alive, you can imagine John sitting there and thinking, I might even see this. He looks up at Jerusalem, he looks at the great temple. Everything seems secure. Everything seems in order. He doesn't know of any reason why the Romans should surround Jerusalem with their armies. He can't see any reason at the moment why there should be any destruction or desolation of that city. But Jesus says, you're going to see it happen. You're going to see the coming of the Son of God. We may go quickly to Matthew chapter 24. As we said earlier, it's one of those chapters that deals with the same issues. Again, in verse 34 of that chapter 24, Jesus said, Verily I say unto you, This generation shall not pass till all these things be fulfilled. These things are going to happen. What are they? Uh, Verse 3 of chapter 24, He sat upon the Mount of Olives. The disciples came unto him privately, saying, Tell us, when shall these things be? And what shall be the sign of thy coming and of the end of the world? The end of the world. Now you should know that when we read that word, world, in the scriptures, It means different things. The material world, the planet that you and I live on, is the cosmos. That's not the word that is used. See on. And it's the word that simply means the age. When shall the sign of thy, what shall be the sign of thy coming? And of the end of the world as we know it. The end of the world as it is presently known and experienced. When is this dramatic change of the world going to take place? The world of the Jews. The world of the Gentiles, where Jew and Gentile are not the same, they are separate, the Gentiles, the uncircumcised, the unclean, the untouchables, the world where there is a partition between Jew and Gentile. When is that going to end? When is that going to happen? That was their concern. It's going to happen soon. It's going to happen later. The end of the world, thy coming. What shall be the sign of thy coming? And the dispensationists and the Adventists and those who are speaking of things like that, they say, well, it's the second coming of Christ. When he comes in the clouds and all those who are alive shall be caught up to him in the air and those who are dead shall be raised from their graves. The Savior was to come with vengeance for two reasons. For the progress of the gospel he would ride in the white horse. And he would ride with a bow in his hand and a crown on his head 
to take vengeance, as in Psalm 45, the church is saying, ride forth and prosper. But the red horse will ride out, commissioned from his throne, to bring war, to take away peace, to surround Jerusalem, because the day of God's vengeance has come. And the black horse shall ride out. And famine shall decimate the numbers within the walls of Jerusalem. Mothers will be eating their very own children. And those are the facts of history. It happened. The vengeance of God is terrible. One million people were killed during the siege when Titus surrounded Jerusalem. Ninety-five to ninety-seven thousand were taken off into slavery and scattered throughout the Roman Empire, as Jesus said would happen. There were so many crucifixions of Jews by the Romans, they ran out of wood, they couldn't crucify anymore. It was the day of God's vengeance. And why? They rejected the gospel. I tell you, we need to understand for our own soul's good the realities of God's working and the kingdom of Christ enthroned, what it is like, the power that he possesses. And I close just with this from Romans chapter 11. Just leaving this in the hope it connects certain things in our minds. In Romans chapter 11, a portion that is used again and again by dispensationalists to emphasize the place of the nation of Israel in history, future history, and so on. And it has its place, but only its place. Jesus didn't say, I will restore the nation of Israel. I will build the nation of Israel. What did he say? I will build my church. I will build my church. The church becomes central, not the nation or national Israel anymore. But, In Romans chapter 11, Paul says, just for the sake of time, verse 20, Well, because of unbelief, they were broken off. Because of their unbelief, God took vengeance. They trampled the Son of God under their feet. They trampled his blood under their feet. And because of their unbelief and the rejecting of the gospel, they were cut off. Because God takes unbelief most seriously. He takes most seriously the despising of the gospel. And what does Paul say to the Romans? Their unbelief resulted in their being cut off. Verse 21, if God spared not the natural branches, take heed, the Gentile church, the New Testament church, take heed, go back to A.D. 70, go back to the day of God's vengeance, see the vengeance that he took, Upon those who trampled his son under their feet. Now you Gentile believers, keep that in mind and ask, why did it happen? It happened because of unbelief. If God spared not then the natural branches, take heed, lest he spare not thee. God has not changed. And thus, when you have, and for example, Matthew 24, Luke 21, Mark 13, you have all these predictions. 
And some people get the idea, well, this didn't happen, that didn't happen, it must be future. Paul is telling the Gentile church, unbelief will bring about a repetition. At another point in history of what has already been taking place, And these are the solemn, solemn warnings of God. The God that this generation has yet to deal with. The unbelieving generation trampling God's Son under its feet. I tell you, God's vengeance will be real. As real as it has been in the past. But time is gone. We better leave it there. May the Lord bless his word. Let us pray. Most holy and eternal God, write thy truth in our hearts. Oh, enable us to believe what is revealed to us of thy character, of thy being, of thy terrible attributes. Lord God, we Praise thee for thy grace and thy saving mercy, for the glorious gospel. May we never be guilty of despising it. Have mercy upon those who do not trust in Christ, who do not believe the gospel. May we flee to him as our everlasting salvation. Bless thy truth, pardon us, accept us, for Christ the Redeemer's sake. Amen.